Hello, everyone, and welcome to my podcast, Body Justice. I started this podcast because I believe that all bodies are good bodies. All bodies are deserving, worthy, and all bodies are whole, just as they are. In today's world, it's ever hard to embody this as our truth. My mission is to create a space to process body image, eating disorders, and relationships through a justice-oriented lens. I'm a licensed therapist in California and an eating disorder survivor myself. I know what it's like to be at war with myself and also to find peace again. Thank you for being here and I look forward to being your host. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Body Justice. We are already on episode 10 and I cannot even believe it. Um, so I'm super excited for you to hear my interview today with anti-diet dietitian in training, Shika Advani. She's on Instagram at nutrition underscore by underscore SA. Um, we're going to discuss her personal struggle with orthorexia, which if you don't know what that is, it's pretty much an unhealthy obsession with trying to be healthy. It is um, not a current eating disorder in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. However, it is extremely prevalent, so it's super important to talk about. It is disguised so much in our culture because a lot of it um, is, is coming from wellness culture and diet culture and is very normalized. So we're going to get into that. We're also going to talk about how health at every size and intuitive eating has been healing for her recovery. Um, Shika also identifies as South Asian Indian and shares how her ethnicity has shaped her relationship to food and her body over the years. Shika is also very passionate about integrating social justice in her career as a dietitian. So uh, we are going to get started with that in just a moment. I do have one quick announcement. So um, if you are following me on Instagram, you probably already know, but I just released a course on eating disorders. This is a self-course or self-guided course called Essential Skills for Eating Disorder Recovery. Um, this is for anyone currently in recovery that wants something to kind of fast track their journey. Um, essentially, this is going to give you my top tools for helping clients recover from eating disorders. Um, so if you're ready to make peace with food in your body, this course is for you. Um, no matter if you struggle with restricting, binging, or purging, this course is designed to help fast track your recovery. It's just jam-packed with different tools that I used in my own journey and that I use with clients, and I see clients make so much progress with these tools. Um, if you are a provider and you just want to learn more about treating eating disorders, this is also a good course for you. We're going to use a variety of evidence-based tools and techniques throughout the course um, from different modalities of therapy. Um, also, if you are a family member or friend of someone struggling, this is also a good course for you because you can teach these skills to your loved one and empower them to make changes. So whether you're personally struggling, supporting someone who is, or a provider, this course is great for you. I'm an eating disorder specialist, a licensed therapist in California, and as you all know, I've personally recovered from an eating disorder years ago. So I really aim to infuse my clinical expertise and personal experience into the course. This course is not a substitute for therapy, rather it's an adjunct to your recovery. Um, your purchase of this course does not constitute a provider-patient relationship. This is an educational course. 
Um, and there is two and a half hours of content. Some of the different chapters are making peace with food, building motivation for recovery, identifying and coping with eating disorder urges, learning how to cope with emotions in recovery, learning how to externalize the eating disorder, body image healing, and then social justice and eating disorder recovery. Um, there's tons of bonus materials, PDFs for almost every chapter. Um, so go check it out. Go to my Instagram at body justice therapist in my bio, you will find a link to the course where you can go in and purchase it. And if you go and comment on my recent post, um, about the course, you'll see it on my Instagram feed and you make the first, uh, 15 people to comment, you can get a discount code. I'll DM you. So go ahead and check out that post, check out the link in my bio. And I look forward to hearing all of your thoughts about the course. So without further ado, let's get Shika on here. I know that was a long intro. Thanks for bearing with me. Here's Shika. Shika, can you tell my listeners a little bit about who you are, um, how you identify any aspects of your story that you feel willing to share? Yeah, so... Like you said, my name is Shika Advani and I am a dietetics and psychology student. I'm about to start my master's in dietetic internship at Boston University in the fall. And I identify as South Asian or Indian, whichever one is fine. And I hope to work as an eating disorder dietitian through a health at every size, intuitive eating, anti-diet lens in a couple of years. That's amazing. Um, I love your, I love how, you know, you're, you're in school, but you are already focused on health at every size and intuitive eating. Um, Because I hear from a lot of other people that have gone through dietitian programs that they don't even have much exposure to haze and IE. Um, Is that something that your program talks about? Honestly, no, our, my program is still pretty weight centric, I would say. So a lot of the health at every size, intuitive eating, anti-diet, fat positive information that I've gotten is actually through outside sources. So mm-hmm. from Instagram and joining different organizations and things like that. How did you get interested in, in health at every size and IE? Yeah, so I actually found out about it through Instagram which is Mm -hmm. kind of crazy, but yeah, Instagram has actually led me to the path that I'm going down now. So I started following, you know, body positive, fat positive, intuitive eating, dietitians, healthcare professionals, and people in general on Instagram. And I found podcasts, books, and really great people through it all. And that's really helped me learn a lot. Yeah. Oh, I can so relate. Like Instagram, there's so much amazing things on there, even though there can be like problematic things too. It's sure. also, if you're looking at the right things. You can learn so much. Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely, there's so many different sides, I would say of social media, but when you get to the positive side, it's actually a really great place to be. Definitely. And maybe for, you know, listeners that have never heard of health at every size before, would you mind just sharing a little bit about what Health at Every Size is? Yeah, so Health at Every Size is just a framework that shows people that your health is not really determined from your weight solely. There's so many different factors that go into what your health actually is. So we're really talking about social determinants of health. So Mm -hmm. your environment, your access to food, your access to healthcare, 
So many people think, oh, when you're talking about health, you're just talking about, you know, how much you eat and how much you exercise. But in reality, that's a very, very small part of the puzzle. And there's a lot more things that go into it. So we really need to get out of this idea that the way you look or how much you weigh is what your health status is. Yeah. Oh my gosh, exactly. And I think one of the biggest things pushback wise that I hear about Hayes is people are like, well, you can't be healthy at every size. What would you say to that? So it's not saying that you can or that you're healthy at every size. It's saying that you can be healthy at any size. So if you're in a larger body, many people just automatically assume that you're not healthy and that's way far from the truth. So there, you, we have to stop looking at people and saying this person's healthy based on their body size. So it's not saying, so there are people in larger bodies that may be unhealthy, but there's also people in smaller bodies that also may be unhealthy. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of those factors that we have to look into before just automatically assuming. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I always tell like my clients, it doesn't mean healthy at every size. It's just at any size you're in, you can work towards health. Like Absolutely. Through- you know, different behaviors and getting more access to resources. And I love that Haze is such a social justice lens. Like it looks at like what public health changes need to happen so that people can access better care. Absolutely. And I honestly wish that every public health concentration or, or, um, major or anything like that really looked at the social determinants of health and really looked at health, the health exercise framework when mm-hmm. creating their programs rather than looking at it through a weight-centric view. Yes, I agree. In my graduate training as a therapist, I was lucky I went to a really social justice informed program. And so they, we actually did learn about Hayes and social determinants of health. However, it was still only like one course among many. So yeah, there's still such a lack of like making that the focal point, not just this like alternative thing. For sure. Yeah, definitely. Just even for our community nutrition class, I think we barely even touched on the surface of health at every size or anything like that. So it'd be nice if we had a whole program around it rather than just a small piece of it. Exactly. Like a haze informed program. Right. Um, what what happens when you bring up or if you bring up haze to like your professors and things like that, are they receptive? It really depends on the professor. So last semester I had a a professor really just steeped in diet culture and just really didn't want to hear it at all. And then this semester I kind of have a professor that's more of a fence straddler. So she'll listen and she'll take what you have to say into account, but she'll also go back to the weight, go back to the BMI. So it really just depends on who I'm talking about, but I really like to just plant seeds where I can Mm -hmm. and hopefully it can help another student you know, see the other side of dietetics and not just the weight-centric view of it. Totally. Um, How has Hayes, you know, in any way, has it helped you personally? Yeah, so I've actually struggled through my own eating disorder for quite a few years, actually, I struggled with it. So learning about health every size and learning about intuitive eating has actually been so helpful to just me and myself for my Mm -hmm. journey through healing. And I've been able to see that I could be healthy at any size and that I don't have to constantly strive for the thinness that our our society says is necessary. So it's not only just helped me figure out what career I want, but it's helped me figure out how I can heal in my own self. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's going to make you such an amazing dietitian because you have that personal firsthand experience. For sure. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned being South Asian or Indian. Um, I'm curious, how has your ethnicity shaped your relationship to food and your body over the years? Yeah, so for South Asian culture, I would say it's really focused. It's a really food focused culture. We love food. We love to connect through food. We love to have parties through food. So food is a huge part of our culture. But something that's also part of our culture is just casually talking about each other's bodies and body shaming. So, I mean, you can see someone after a few years and the first thing they'll say to you is, oh, well, you've gained weight or, oh, you've lost weight. It's just the first thing that you hear within our culture. And even just the other day, I was talking to someone who's actually come from India just a couple of months ago. And she, we were looking through my graduation pictures and she pointed out something on my body. And it kind of just like took me aback. Like I, I wasn't really ready for something like that because I hadn't heard something like that in so long but it's just a, such a common thing in South Asian culture to just talk about bodies mm -hmm. and to talk about it kind of in a casual way but also for especially someone who's American born it does feel like something that's definitely a shaming thing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely that must be really hard to navigate how did you handle that in the moment? Yeah so actually I've gone to a place where I don't see, cause they did use the word fat and I don't see fat as a bad word anymore. So it kind of just gave me, I was able to kind of just think about it. And I was like, okay, so she called me fat, but is that really something that is bothering me? It wasn't mm -hmm. actually, but I thought about if this happened four or five years ago, it would have probably sent me into a spiral, but now I'm able to just sit with it and think about it and move on with it. So it's really, it was actually a great experience for me to see how far I have gotten. Yeah, it really highlighted your transformation and probably all the work you've done to um, dismantle fat phobia, like within yourself. Yeah, of course, because I mean, we can't dismantle fat phobia or anti-fat bias in society if we're not doing it for ourselves first. Yeah, how did you get to that place of being able to dismantle that anti-fat bias within yourself? Honestly, just a lot of, listening to podcasts, reading books, learning through other practitioners, and just a lot of self-reflection. Mm -hmm, definitely. Yeah, it's like one of those things that once you become awake to it, it's mm -hmm. hard to look away. <laughs> it's like right. any other form of oppression. For sure. And it's kind of, you have to always remember that our society, this anti-fat bias in society is so ingrained in us that mm -hmm. it's it takes a lot of work to dismantle that in your own head. But once you do start dismantling it, you can see how prominent it is in culture. And then you start to just get angry about it. And you're like, this is, this needs to stop, you know, because it's in so many aspects of our culture. Absolutely. It's everywhere. And it, it's like that lifelong work. It's not like we just think about it one time and we're suddenly like anti-fat phobia or yeah, we're suddenly like um, accepting of all bodies all the time. It's still that constant. We have to fight that kind of outside narrative that's going to seep in from time to time. Yeah, for sure. Um, and you mentioned in the past struggling with orthorexia. Um, can you tell my listeners a little bit about that journey and even what orthorexia is? Yeah, so when I, I actually grew up in a larger body. So mm -hmm. I was, I always grew up kind of 
being made fun of for the way I looked or being told by doctors that I needed to lose weight or just everything like that kind of culminated up when up until my eighth grade year when I finally decided that it was time for me to lose the weight so it kind of, it led me down a really dark path because it really started so innocently and then I found calorie counting apps and I found a lot of other harmful practices and I ended up actually it with anorexia nervosa but then I was taken to a dietitian and I became weight restored after some amount of time and then it kind of transitioned into orthorexia and orthorexia is an obsession with quote unquote healthy eating that leads to damage of your own well-being. So it really focuses more around the purity of food and more on the quality of food rather than the quantity because I was eating enough, quote unquote, but I wasn't eating stuff that I deemed as not clean or as dirty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were still still lots of like fear foods and food rules. Right, right. So, I mean, I was weight restored, but I was in not a, I was not in a good place surrounding food. And I definitely still had a lot of work to do around surrounding that. But it's just crazy to me that I was let go from seeing the dietitian. I wasn't even recommended therapy anything because I was weight restored and Mm -hmm. there was nothing looking back on that. Like they didn't say, oh, well, you still have a disordered relationship with food or distorted view on food. So I really think that that's something that needs to be worked on within treatment centers as well. I completely agree. And I think so many of us that have experienced our own eating disorders have dabbled in orthorexia at some point. Um, Definitely was part of my journey too. And it's something that is so um, reinforced by the culture just constantly. And so it's really hard to identify, but yeah, it's really this like, you know, unhealthy obsession with quote unquote healthy eating. And for the listeners out there, the reason why I'm putting it in air quotes, the healthy part, and I'm sure Shika too, is that health is, you know, context and person specific. So you can't just say that like steamed broccoli is healthy for every single person. If the person is malnourished, they're going to need a lot more than broccoli. Um, Right. So yeah, and people have different chronic illnesses that require different foods. And so there is no universal health. And so, yeah, really kind of getting out of that mindset, but it's very hard. Oh, it's so hard, but it's really so freeing when you Mm -hmm. get out of that mindset of good and bad food or as kind of, I feel like orthorexia has kind of led into this wellness culture Mm -hmm. where instead of saying good and bad, we're saying clean and dirty or you know things like that so it's really just changing the language around it but it's the same same thing but Mm -hmm. really making it more wellness wellnessy and making it seem a little bit less scary right but even just like what you're saying like the clean versus you know the clean eating thing like right for the person that struggles with an eating disorder or has the genetic predisposition our minds work a little differently then we see everything else as dirty and bad. And then we think something bad or wrong is gonna happen to us. And so, yeah, if these wellness trends could really understand like how this impacts people, that would be great because I think, yeah, the language is so important and I think it keeps so many people trapped. Right, yeah, I completely agree. And I mean, some so many of the symptoms of orthorexia just go as 
being disciplined or honestly normal in our culture. So that's another problem that our diet culture is constantly reinforcing these ideas as something that we should be proud of when they're actually disordered behaviors. Oh, I completely agree. I see it all the time. Um, Speaking of some of those symptoms, what would be some warning signs that someone might be struggling with orthorexia? Yeah, so I mean, a lot of times people just go around a grocery store and are spending hours and they're looking at different nutrition labels. So if you find yourself doing that or looking at the ingredient list, that's definitely a symptom. Or if you're saying, oh, well, the ingredient list can't have a word that I can't pronounce on it or saying that it can't have more than five ingredients. Or if you're cutting out whole entire food groups under the guise of quote unquote health, then that's definitely a disordered behavior that is synonymous with orthorexia. Mm-hmm. And you know, the inability to eat food that someone has cooked for you because you don't know what's in it or the inability to go out to eat with your friends. That's another thing that's definitely seen as orthorexic behavior. Or if you're feeling distress when you're not able to eat your quote unquote safe foods and if those aren't available. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And it really just becomes this big obsession to where like you're just consumed with thoughts about quote unquote, healthy foods and what is healthy for your body. And yeah, to the point where you can't even just like live your life going out to lunch with a friend becomes this huge, stressful, anxiety provoking event. Um, Yeah, it's such an important thing to mention because like we just talked about, it's so prevalent. And yet I think so many people are just silently struggling um, because it's so reinforced by the culture. Right. And it's so upsetting because it's still not in the DSM-5 yet. So it's not mm-hmm. recognized as an official eating disorder. But so I'm really hoping that within the next couple of years, we're able to get it in the DSM-5 so we can actually use it as a diagnosis. Because I mean, there was a time when binge eating disorder wasn't even in the DSM-5. So yeah, you know, not that long ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was not that long ago. I think it was in 2013, which is wild because it's the most common eating disorder. Right. And I mean, orthorexia is up there with, you know, anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder. So when we can get this put in there, then we can see honestly how many people are struggling. Right. And people can actually access treatment because there's a diagnostic code to get them like insurance reimbursements. Right. I mean, there's so many other things that go into people accessing treatment, but hopefully we can make it where people are able to access treatment and it's not as big of a burden as it is now. Totally. Um, So we we talked about a little bit, you mentioned intuitive eating. Is that something that helped you with your struggle in orthorexia? I actually did not know what intuitive eating was when I was struggling with orthorexia because I was struggling with that through most of my high school years and the first couple, maybe the first year of college. So I think it was, it was helping me, but I couldn't put a name to it. Mm-hmm. I wasn't hundred percent sure what exactly it was. Gotcha. How did you end up discovering intuitive eating? Kind of the same way that I discovered health at every size and the anti-diet movement. It was all, all of it kind of hit me at the same time. Gotcha. Yeah, they kind of all go hand in hand. Yeah, for sure. For sure. What are some of the, you know, most important tenets of intuitive eating in your opinion? Yeah, so there's uh, actually 10 principles of intuitive eating, but we can't even talk about intuitive eating without acknowledging the privilege that goes into intuitive eating and that you have to have 
certain privileges to be able to practice all of the tenets of intuitive eating. So we definitely have to bring that up because, I mean, there's privilege in almost everything. You have to acknowledge it. Yes. I love yeah. that you mentioned that. What are some of those privileges that people might need in order to practice intuitive eating? So first and foremost, we have to talk about access to food because one of the main, one of the tenets of intuitive eating is that you have unconditional permission to eat, but a lot of people do not have that unconditional access to food. Mm-hmm. So we have to focus on that. We have to focus on access to healthcare and a lot of other privileges like that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's like one of the biggest predictors of an eating disorder is food scarcity. So right great that we have intuitive eating as kind of like a framework, but there's also this like bigger picture we have to focus on too, which is getting people, all all people access to food and basic needs. Right. I mean, but the problem is that a lot of people do see intuitive eating as this hunger and fullness diet, mm-hmm. where it's not actually that. So we, we have, a lot of people see that, or they just see intuitive eating as another diet, but it's actually not another diet. Too. Yes. I agree. Whenever I mention it to clients, we start working on it and they kind of at first give me a look like, what the hell? Are you giving me another diet? And I'm like, no, don't worry. It's not a diet. This is literally just your birthright. Like we were all born intuitive eaters. This this is just a language for that. Um, But yeah, it's, it can definitely scare people at first. For sure. And there are a couple of the tenets that we can look at that everyone can practice. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's rejecting the diet mentality. So getting out of that, oh, food food is good, food is bad. And just seeing food as not having a moral value to it. So that's something that all all of us can work on because there's no such thing as good or bad food. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's like the second principle, right? First is like unconditional permission to eat. And then I think the second one is rejecting the diet mentality, but you can probably correct me on that. I think the first one is reject the diet mentality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) It's one of those two. Um, Yeah, yeah. What are some of the other ones that you feel like are accessible to most people? Um, So I would say learning to respect your body. So learning that, you know, to not or learning to get away from that restriction aspect and while that does there is still we still have to talk about food access with that one but just remembering that we have to respect our body we have to treat our body with kindness and remember that we have to all always remember that mm-hmm. yeah and intuitive eating is such a pathway to do that because the whole process of intuitive eating is you like nourishing your body with care and kindness and kind of like an inner parent yeah yeah. And I, what I love about the framework is that you can work through the first nine factors and then you can get to gentle nutrition because mm-hmm. so many people tend to just skip straight to gentle nutrition, and, but they're always like, what about nutrition? And it's like nutrition honestly does not matter until you have a healthy relationship with food. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. And, and I always tell clients, like when we get to that gentle nutrition phase, it, doesn't mean we take anything away. We add to what you're already doing. There is no like rules or anything. Right. Um, Yeah. So that's a really good point. Um, Yeah. And I encourage all the listeners to go look up intuitive eating. They have a website and you can read more about the principles we're talking about, 
But really it is, if we could get one thing across, I think just letting you know, it is just becoming more in tune with your body really and rejecting all these like external narratives about what we should be doing with food. Right. right. What would you say, Chica, about like one thing you want people to know in terms of intuitive eating? I think just what you said, oh, just a couple minutes ago is that this is your birthright. Like you were born an intuitive eater. So for all the people that say that they can't do intuitive eating, you were born doing this. So if you were born doing this, then you can do it now, but it does take work. It does take a lot of rejecting our culture, but it's possible for everybody. Yeah, totally agree. And what I see when people go down the path of intuitive eating, they just start feeling so much better in their life. Like it's almost like, it just has this like mind, body, soul, spirit effect. Um, so it's really cool to watch. Yeah, for sure. Um, what are some of the challenges you face in your dietetics program? I know you mentioned the cohort is mostly white women. What's it like to be like one of the only minorities in that space? Yeah, so there are just a couple of people that identify as black indigenous or a person of color. So I definitely do feel like I am in the minority. And there are times where I feel like I have not been heard or we aren't talking about it in terms of the masses. So it definitely can be a challenge at times, but it also gives me the opportunity to be able to speak up and say when we're not, you know, talking about Black Indigenous people of color, we're not talking about access to food, we're not talking about access to healthcare, and those things do need to be talked about. Mm -hmm, definitely. Oh, gosh, I'm so glad you're there, even though I'm sure at times it's hard being one of the only minorities. I'm so glad you have that voice there because it's so needed. Thank uh, you. What do you feel like needs to change in the field to make things more inclusive? Oh, well, there's a lot. So <laughs> first of all, the dietetic internship that we have to do it is required and it is unpaid. And as of 2024, a master's degree is also required for all dietitians. Mm -hmm. So this dietetic internship is extremely elitist and it also alienates a lot of black indigenous people of color from even joining the program of dietetics because they see that they have this huge internship that they have to do and it's it's very expensive. It's not cheap by any means. So I definitely think that that's a big change that needs to be made. And yeah, I think we also need to be just seeing more representation for BIPOC within the programs. I know that there's only one or two, I think two Black Indigenous people of color within my program in terms of the staff. So, and even with BU, I don't think that there is a person of color within the staff. So just really emphasizing that diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah, absolutely. Because then what happens is we just have this um, group of dietitians that are treating people that are mostly white and people, people of all colors and backgrounds need you know, treatment. And so if you don't feel safe going to a dietitian who's white because you're afraid they're not going to understand your culture, well, then you're just not going to get care. And, you know, right. it just leaves so many people out. Right, right. So we definitely, we just need so much more representation in the field. We need so much more access and we need so much more equity and inclusion because there's, we often see so many people talking people talking about why diversity is important, but we are not seeing that many people actually doing the work to bring more diversity. 
Mm -hmm, right. And like you're saying, there's so many barriers, like having unpaid internships, like yeah. who can, yeah, only people that are privileged enough to be able to not have an income while doing that can access that. Yeah, that was definitely a problem in my therapist training too. It's the same right. thing. It's very elitist. And um, yeah, you're basically working for nothing for quite a while. So yeah, it's, it is not okay. Right. And I mean, are we not at the point when we can, where we can abolish unpaid internships? It's just, it's just crazy to me at this point that we're still making people do these unpaid internships. Yeah, it is not fair at all. And yeah, it keeps so many people out of going into these programs. So then again, we are left with people running the, these fields that are at the top, right? And, and it just, it leaves so many people silenced. Right, right. When you think of the phrase body justice, um, what does that mean to you? So the first word I can think of is the word empowerment. Mm -hmm. And I mean, currently when we see the body positive movement, it's actually being taken over by white women in smaller bodies. We see those trends where people are hunched over, like trying to show their roles, but that's not what the body positive movement was meant to do. It was actually started by fat black women as a social justice movement and it's kind of being co-opted by these white women in smaller bodies so I really I think it's so important to empower the people that actually that the movement was actually meant for mm -hmm. absolutely I completely agree um I get so irritated at those those trend photos that you just talked oh, about it's just right. ridiculous so yeah, empowerment and empowering people to, you know, find freedom and food in their bodies. Right. And I mean, I also think of empowering people in marginalized communities to fight for things like body autonomy, body autonomy, health at every size, against anti-racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, all these things, just really, just really fighting for people's basic human rights at this point. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Oh, I love that. Um, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Um, where can people find you? Instagram, wherever you're at. Yeah, thank you for having me. So you can find me on my Instagram at nutrition underscore by underscore SA. And I'm currently working through making a website. It probably won't be up till late summer, but you know, just trying to finish up school and everything. But yeah, for right now, my Instagram is probably the best way to find me. Awesome, Shika. Well, thank you so much for being here and everyone definitely go follow her and check her out. Thank you so much.